please take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 19, the 19th Psalm. We have been preaching through uh, 1 Corinthians and uh, a couple different reasons. We're taking a break from that uh, this Sunday morning. One is because uh, I'm really eager to preach uh, this passage to us um, this morning. And secondly, I had no time whatsoever to prepare over the last week. Uh, so um, this is uh, where God has us this morning. And I, I like starting on this theme uh, at the beginning of a new year, so I'm eager uh, for us to dive into Psalm 19. I sound really weird to myself up here. I don't know, um, maybe it's what you all experience every time I talk, but it sounds really <laughs> weird to me. Something's a lot of feedback. Psalm 19, we'll be looking this morning at verses 7 through 11. Let me open our time uh, together with prayer. You invite us to call you Daddy. And so, like children who need their fathers more than they know, we come to you this morning acknowledging to some degree how desperately we need you. We need you to open your word to our hearts and minds this morning. We desperately need that. And the fact that we're even here and capable of hearing from your word this morning is testimony that you've kept our hearts beating and our lungs filling with air and our brains working all, all night long. So God, thank you for bringing us together here this morning. And please now open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your law. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If I told you that I would give you $50 every day this year that you read your Bible, would you do it? You probably would. If I told you that if you memorized one verse a week and I'd give you $1,000 a week to memorize that one verse a week, would you do it? You probably would, right? If I asked you, look, if you can just spend a little bit of time meditating on the 23rd Psalm every day this week and I'll give you $5,000 for doing that, would you do it? And of course the answer is yes, you'd do it. Don Whitney, a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, asks this, could you memorize if I paid you $1,000 per verse? Knowing that the answer to that question would be yes. And the reason I ask that series of questions is because that series of questions actually reveals something very important to us. You see, the, the reason we struggle to read the Bible or to memorize Scripture or to meditate on the law of the Lord, the reason we struggle isn't because we can't. Ah, I just, I can't memorize. Or, ah, you know, I just, I'm not, I'm not disciplined enough to get up and spend time in the Word and meditating on Scripture. That's, that's not why we do it. The reason, excuse me, that's not why we don't do it. The reason we don't do it is primarily because we don't value the Word appropriately. See, if I told you, uh, memorize a verse a week and I'll give you $1,000, you'd find a way to do it because there's something that you're valuing in that moment. In fact, unfortunately, there's something that you're valuing even more than the word of God in that moment. You're valuing that 1000 bucks. It's the beginning of a new year, January 1st. And for good or for ill, we tend to start a new year with 
plans and goals, and we call them resolutions, right? New Year's resolutions. I alluded to these last week, right? We're going to exercise every day. We're going to lose 180 pounds. We're going to, you know, only eat raw local vegetables. We're going to, um, you know, we're going to balance our checkbook finally, you know, wh- whatever. Whatever your resolution is, we're going to read three hours of scripture every day and that sort of thing. It's resolution time. And for some of you, you may already feel like you're off to the wrong foot, right? It's, it's January 1st and it's 11 o'clock and you already haven't done your Bible reading and you think, oh man, I, I've, I better do it later this afternoon because you can't start the beginning of the new year without reading your Bible, right? I mean, what a horrible foot to get off on to think, oh man, you know, like, well, that blows 2012 entirely because the very first day I didn't read my Bible. Unfortunately, we often feel this way, don't we? And for many of us, this begins a very familiar cycle, January does. A very familiar Bible reading cycle. January finds you where? Finds you in Genesis, of course. What better place to start than right at the very beginning? Maybe this morning you've already read, possibly by sheer willpower. You didn't want to start the year without reading your Bible. And now you've uh, begun and, and you've read Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And you've read Genesis chapters 1 through 3, January 1st, for the last 10 to 25 years, right? You just know that's where you're supposed to start. And for many, your motives were... By the way, I have not read Genesis chapters 1 through 3 yet this morning. For many, your motives are noble and your desires are earnest, but in the back of your mind, you're already thinking, you're already thinking like I am already thinking, is this going to last? Will this last through February? Will it make it to February? And though your motives are noble and your desires are earnest, not all motives that are noble are right. Right? I mean, we, we know people whose, whose desires and, and intentions are earnest, but, but they're not pursuing the right thing. And this morning, I want to work through a passage of Scripture that addresses us at the heart and at the motive level. level. Look at verse 10 of Psalm 19. Verse 10 of Psalm 19 says this, More to be desired are they... And we're going to look at what they are later more fully, but they are referring to the words of God. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I think if most of us are really honest with ourselves when we read that first line, that first phrase of verse 10, it's actually a very discouraging verse for us. More to be desired are they than gold. But I don't desire the word of God more than gold. I'd rather the thousand bucks than the verse of memorized scripture each week. Well, we're going to talk about that. Why, Why don't we read our Bibles? Because we don't value them properly. Why do we have such a difficult time valuing the word? Well, we're going to talk about that. We're only going to look at verses 7 through 11 of this psalm. As you know, it's, the psalm is, is an entire unit, an entire unit of thought, and many men have broken it down into uh, different ways of looking at this psalm. It refers to the world and the word, or the cosmos and the commands, or natural revelation and biblical revelation. Some have called this 
Psalm disguised in the scripture because you read through the first few verses and the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. This morning, we're just going to look at the word part. In fact, for many of you, your Bibles, the heading itself says, the law of the Lord is perfect. So even those who put our Bibles together have recognized that this is a big theme here in this psalm. What I don't want to do, what my goal is not this morning, my goal is not to guilt you into reading your Bible more often. In fact, my goal isn't to get you to read your Bible every day. My goal is to help you see that the Word of God is valuable. And I really believe that when we see the Word of God as valuable, that we will meditate on the law of the Lord. I don't want to guilt you at all. I mean, how, how comforting would it be to my wife if I came home and said, I'm going to talk to you every day because all the other good husbands are doing it and they're making me feel bad because I'm not, right? She would know that there's no love there. It's merely an obligation. It's merely guilt. I'm being forced into doing something that I don't really value. But if my wife knows that I value her and I desire to spend time with her because I see that she is wonderful and she's beautiful and she's worth spending time with, well, that changes everything, doesn't it? So my goal isn't even daily Bible reading for you. You know, something that's interesting for us to at least consider here for a moment, the Bible doesn't say read your Bibles every day. I mean, consider most of Christian history. Most of Christian history, most of human history, meant that God's people didn't have a copy of the Scriptures like we have. Most of the Christians that have lived throughout time didn't have the option of a yearly Bible reading schedule, Bible reading calendar. In fact, even those who may have had access to a copy of the Scriptures weren't literate. They couldn't have read it if they would have wanted to. And yet, God says to them, in my law, you must meditate day and night. So how can someone who doesn't have a copy of the Scriptures or have the ability to read, even if they did have a copy of the Scriptures, how are they to meditate on the the law of the Lord day and night? Well, we're going to look at that because that's... God's intent for us. As a church, I think it's really obvious that we're committed to the word. We are a word-driven. It says right on the middle of, your, of the bulletin that you got this morning, we, we are a Christ-centered, word-driven, spirit-empowered ministry. And I think it's possible for us to be a word-driven church, but not be word-driven individuals. Now, in one sense, that's an oxymoron, right? Because the church isn't this building. The church, the church are you. I, have, I don't think that's grammatically correct, but the, you are the church. You are. And if we're going to be a word-driven church, it's, it's not just because whoever stands behind this pulpit preaches expository sermons. That's what we want, right? We want someone to open up the word and tell me what the word says. What does the word say? But you can come and hear an expository sermon once a week and not be a word-driven individual, and therefore, we're not a word-driven church. I believe God's desire for us, and certainly our our desire as pastors for our congregation, is that we be word-driven, that you be word people, that that you be Bible people, as as, uh, one pastor has said, so that when your finger is pricked, you bleed Scripture. So that when you're faced with a problem in your home or in your business or interrelationally, the first kinds of solutions that start coming to your mind is verses of Scripture. 
What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about the conflict I'm having with my spouse? What does the Bible say about how I'm to handle this business practice in my company? How, what does the Bible say about fill in the blank? I want not to guilt us into reading the word, but to delight us into meditating on the scripture. So we're going to look at three things that this psalm makes clear. First, we're going to look at the character of the word. Secondly, we're going to look at the reward of the word. And third, we're going to look at the value of the word. Character, reward, and value of the word. Let's read this passage together. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And we're going to talk even about those two words that end verse 11. In keeping them, there is great reward. First, the character of the word. There are six words that are used to describe the word in this passage. And they're essentially synonyms. One is, takes a little, little different approach, but it's referred to as the law of the Lord, the testimonies of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, commandments of the Lord, fear of the Lord, and rules of the Lord. And we, we look at those and we immediately recognize all of them as, as essentially synonymous, except the word fear. And we think, well, how did the word fear, the fear of the Lord? We've been talking about the, the law and the words and the precepts and the, the, the rules and the commandments, testimony. Where does, where does fear fit in? And while the word fear isn't technically a word, for the word, it does reflect the reality that Scripture is the manual for worship of God. And as one commentator said, fear here is a synonym for the law, for its purpose was to put fear into human hearts. So we have these six descriptors of the word. These words are essentially synonymous in this context. And since the psalmist was searching for words that emphasize different aspects of the same thing, God's law. Of course, the psalmist didn't have 66 books bound in leather like we do. But he did have the Pentateuch. He did have the law of God. So those six words describe the word, but then there are seven words that describe their character to us. The law of the Lord is perfect. That word perfect has the idea of it being complete, sound, blameless. The law of the Lord is sure, it's reliable and faithful. The law of the Lord is right. It has the idea of it being straight or level. It's, it's, it's to be measured by. The law of the Lord is pure, which means right or fair. The law of the Lord is clean. That word has the idea of being flawless. The law of the Lord is true. It means it's firm, it's lasting. And the law of the Lord is Righteous, altogether. It's altogether righteous. And again, just like the six synonyms that were used by the psalmist to describe the word of God, these words are used to describe the character of God, and, and they're used to kind of build a cumulative force, right? 
The law is perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true. And any one of those words kind of has the idea that the author's after, but he uses these words. Again, this is Hebrew poetry, and so these words are stacked up to give, to give the psalmist some force and some weight behind what he's saying. When we read through these words, when we, comp- when we use these words and compare almost anything else in our life experience with these words, we realize how amazing it is that anything could be described this way. As I was reading through this again, I was reading through these words, and I, I, started, I started letting these words shine like a light into my own life. And I started thinking, how, how would these words fit in their use to describe me? So uh, I went to the word perfect, and I immediately had to scratch that one off, right? And then the word sure. And I thought, how often am I... Am I really sure about much of anything, right? I mean, other, unless it's in the Word, my son often comes to me and asks me, you know, Dad, are we going to do such and such tomorrow? And I'll say what parents say. Um, I don't know. And then if, if, he can, if he can kind of wring a more definitive answer out of me, I'll say, well, well probably. And he's kind of gotten into this little habit recently because he's learned what percentages are. And he'll say, how, how many percent sure are you that we're going to do this tomorrow, you know? So, you know, you know, I want to, you know, whatever, we're going to go to the store, we're going to go shooting or something, and, and he wants to know how many percent sure we are. And, and I want to say, you know, I'm 100% sure that we are. He asked me the other day, I forgot about this. He said, Dad, do you think you'll ever go into outer space? Okay. And I said, um, probably not, but I'm not sure. And that was not a satisfying answer to him. He does not want to go into outer space, and he does not want me to go into outer space. And He wanted 100% certainty that I was never going to go. And I said, buddy, I, I mean, I just really don't think that's going to happen unless there are some amazing advances in technology in the next you know, 30 or 40 years and everyone's going to the moon on vacation. So anyway, all that to say, I'm hardly sure of anything. And yet the word of God is absolutely reliable and faithful. I can promise my son that, such, that we'll do such and such tomorrow and be completely wrong. When the sun rises the next day, the word of God is right. It's, it's right. And that has the idea, again, at the end, it's concluded with righteous altogether. Pure, I'm not pure. Clean or flawless, I'm not flawless. True, I'm not true. I'm not lasting and firm all the time. And yet the word of God is what we so desperately need. We need these things because I'm not perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true and altogether righteous. I need something that is. And the word of God is all of these things perfectly. Why is this so significant? Why why is it so significant that the word of God is all of these things? It's so significant because of this. The words of God are the words of God. It's significant because of whose words they are. Why is it meaningless when some people say, you have my word on it? There are some people that you know that if they told you that, that would be essentially meaningless, right? There are some people that you know that they would say that and you would think, yeah, okay, I can, I can pretty well bank on that. But what, what, what happens when God says, you have my word on it? Well, then you know it's absolutely going to come to pass. Well, brothers and sisters, we have God's word. We have God's word on it. 
He's given us his word on it. He's, he's given us his word on everything that we need to have his word on, right? The scripture is sufficient for our lives. The character of the word of God is the character of God. He is perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true and altogether righteous. That's why his word is these things. Do you see how when we begin to think of the word of God like this, all of a sudden, its value begins to increase in our minds. And that's what I'm after this morning. That's what the psalmist is after here, increasing the value of the word of God. I could guilt you into reading your scriptures more, or I could try to anyway. Some of you would see through it. What God wants to do is delight us into reading the scriptures and meditating on them. Number two, the reward of the word. The reward of the word. We could call these four things that we're going to look at in this passage, the effects that the word has, but I like the term reward better. This is what will happen to you when you get the word in you. When you get the word in you, here's what happens. The law of the Lord is perfect. What happens to you? It revives your soul. Reviving your soul, verse 7 says, reviving the soul. I like the old King James Version translation, converting the soul. This is not just a breath of fresh air that the scripture brings into your life. Dead people are made alive through words. They're living words. They're not words like anything else that we've ever experienced in life. They're living words, but dead people are made alive. And I believe this phrase is referring both to the initial conversion of the soul as well as the continual reviving of the soul. Psalm 42, verses 5 and 6. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall say, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So the word of God converts us initially at salvation, the initial conversion of the soul, and also the continual reviving of the soul. And brothers and sisters, don't you know that to be true personally? Don't you know that to be true experientially, personally? Have you ever been in the Word and found a passage of Scripture, a word from the Word, to meet your need, to to revive your soul, to give hope when you were hopeless? This isn't the only reward of the Word. The word also makes the simple wise, the end of verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. A phrase like that is unbelievably encouraging to a guy like me. I have some really smart friends, really smart friends. I was interacting through email with a friend earlier this week who has two PhDs in theology, okay? Um, I can't spell PhD, much less earn one. And, and, and when I consider some of, the, some of the people I know and the, the high IQs they have, and uh, you know, I can begin to think, well, man, you know, obviously they're going to get used by God, and I've got to kind of cross my fingers and hope that God slips me in somewhere. But the Word says that, that it makes simple people wise. It doesn't say that it makes simple people into PhDs. It doesn't say that it makes simple people into unsimple people. It says that it makes simple people wise people. 
So it doesn't mean that you're suddenly going to have a knowledge base that you never had before, but it does mean that the wisdom that comes from the Word can be yours, regardless of your IQ, regardless of your academic achievements, regardless of, of how well your brain works. You can be wise. The Word of God makes, wise, makes, makes simple people into wise people. Most of us are average. Okay? If I said 99% of Americans are above average... That'd be, that's impossible, right? I mean, every, most of us are just regular old average folks and we need the word of God. It makes us wise. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about wisdom and wisdom is knowing and choosing the best means to the best end. And if you've got this book in you, you have what you need to make wise choices, even if you're a very simple person like me. Read the book of Proverbs. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. They are books written to, written by an amazingly wise person to his son so that his son would become wise as well. So the reward of the word, it revives the soul. It makes the simple wise. It makes the heart rejoice. Look in verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And again, haven't you known this experience when you are discouraged you read the word of God and you remember that in spite of your treason, God saved you. You were his enemy and he brought you to his table. He has not dealt with you according to your sins, but has dealt with you according to the righteousness that his son earned. These are things that rejoice our hearts. Even when it looks like everything's going badly, when we get into the word of God, we realize my biggest problem has been taken care of. Through Christ, there is nothing that can touch me. There is nothing that can harm me. My ultimate destiny is taken care of in Christ. Romans 5 reminds us that while we were weak and ungodly and sinful enemies, Christ died for us. That makes me happy. It, it truly and genuinely makes me a happy man. And fourthly, under the reward of the word, it enlightens the eyes. The word of God instills true objectives, worthy values. This is what the word of God does. It enlightens the eyes. It gives simple people, like me, objective clarity and the ability to take steps and make right choices. Psalm 119, verse 13, verse 130 rather. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple if you want to know what to do, where to go, how to live, the word of God enlightens the eyes. And then verse 11 ends with a really interesting phrase. In keeping them, there is great reward. I think a lot of times we get hesitant. You know, we think, oh, I don't want to like, pursue my own good, my own reward. Well, that, that isn't against Scripture. Remember, remember when uh, the apostles come to Christ and they ask him, you know, how to be, who will be first and second in his kingdom? Who can sit on his right hand? He doesn't say, don't pursue greatness. He actually says, pursue greatness. And here's how you do it. If you want to be the greatest, you've got to serve. You've got to be the servant of all. And even here, God, through the psalmist, is telling us, pursue your own reward. Pursue your own reward through the scriptures. Because remember, it enlightens the eyes and encourages the heart and gives wisdom to the simple. That's reward. 
I think sometimes we get wrapped up in the health and wealth kind of gospel and we think, well, um, since I'm sick and I'm poor, obviously the Bible's not working. That's not the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel is that the word of God will do these other things that we've mentioned, enlighten the eyes and gladden the heart and give wisdom to the simple. Ultimately, the reward of the word is a person, the person Jesus Christ. In John 1, the scripture says the word was God. He was the full expression of God in human form, and he is our greatest reward, and we get him through the written word. Number three, the value of the word. Number three, the value of the word. Let's go back to our troubling verse 10, our discouraging verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Why don't I find the word of God more desirable than lots of really nice gold? Why don't I find it more desirable than wonderfully sweet drippings of honey? If, if I have in front of me a, a box of love letters written to me from my wife and a box of junk mail, just the average you know, credit card applications and you, you won $50 million in a vacation and that sort of thing. That, I've got those two different boxes full of letters. One's junk mail and one are letters from my wife. Why am I more eager to read this box full of letters? They both are on paper. They both contain words. Well, the reason that this is more desirable is because I value what's in this box uh, infinitely, infinitely more than what's in the other box. I, I don't even open what's in the other boxes. These I'll pour over. Why? Because I value what's in this box. And why do I value what's in that box? Because I know who wrote them and why she's written them. And she's written them to me for a reason and for a purpose. And they actually add value to my life. To know things about Angie and to know her expressions of love toward me. This is a, a wonderfully enriching experience. I don't read them out of guilt. If I don't read my letters from my wife, she'll be, get mad at me and you know, she won't cook me food or whatever. No. Do we realize, brothers and sisters, that the infinite God of the universe has chosen to communicate to us? He didn't have to do this. From the mind of God to the mind of man, God's word comes in this book. More valuable than gold. It is more valuable than gold. And lots of fine gold. And as we know God and we know the rewards he offers us through the word, it begins to change our desire to be in the word. Do you desire God's word, more than gold, more than fine gold. Many in this room will wrestle this year with the pursuit of gold versus the pursuit of God. We sang it uh, in one of the songs this morning that our desire is to be um, uh, the pursuit of God. What, what is, um, I think it's in Hebrews, it says that um, 
that you, if, uh, you, if you search me, you will find me if you search for me with all your heart? You pursue what you desire. What are you pursuing? Does your life prove that the word is what you love and what you want? It deserves to be read and memorized and meditated on day and night, intentionally and with regularity. John Piper says this about living on the word of God. Christian living means living on the word of God. We live on the word of God. Day by day, the written word of God in the Bible is the means of our relation to Christ. We fellowship with Christ by knowing him in the written word. We talk to him on the basis of what we know of him from the written word. We hear him speak to us through what he has shown us of his character and purpose in the written word. Moment by moment, our vital union with Christ experientially is sustained and shaped and carried by the word of God. If you don't read the word and memorize the word and meditate on the word daily and delight in the word and savor it and have your mind and emotions shaped by the word, you will be a weak Christian at best. You'll be fragile and easily deceived and easily paralyzed by trouble and stuck in many mediocre ruts. But if you read the word and memorize important parts of it and meditate on it and savor it and steep your mind in it, then you will be like a strong tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth fruit in their season. Your leaf won't wither in the drought and you will be productive in your life. Christian living means living on the written word of God, the Bible. In true Christian living, our relation to the word is intentional, not haphazard. It is active, not passive. We pursue it and don't just wait for it to happen. The Christian life is a joyful project that calls for energy and aim and resolve and determination. It's not coasting or drifting or something that just happens to you like the weather. The word of God soaked in prayer is the substance of that joyful project. Our delight is in the word of the Lord and on his word we must meditate day and night, Psalm 1. Job says this, you've heard this before. It will, uh, excuse me, Job says um, that the word of God is more necessary than his daily food. And the psalmist David says it will keep you from sin. It will be like a light to your path. You'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. So what's your approach to the scripture like? Will it be any different this year than last? I would encourage you to consider what your heart and approach to the scripture has been. Because it is. It is your life as a Christian. I mean, don't you hear the excitement in David's voice as he writes this psalm? You, many of you probably learned a little song along with this passage of Scripture when you were growing up. I will spare you from singing it to you right now. But it's a, it's a sweet little song. And, and it's a very appropriate way for us to rehearse the truths of this Scripture. There's a gladness to David's psalm here. He's saying the word of God in you and its effect in your life is better than anything else you could have. All of this obviously demands that you're getting the word in you. You're not going to live this way. You're not going to value it if it's not in you. 
right? What's the Gatorade commercial? Is it in you? That's a good question for us to ask in regards to the Scripture. Is it in you? It's not enough that you simply have access to the Bible or that you hear Bible preaching. You won't know the reward of the Word. You won't know the value of the Word if you don't have it in you. It's kind of a, it's kind of a cycle that feeds itself, right? If you, if you don't read the Word, then you won't value it. And if you don't value it, you won't read it. And if you don't read it, you won't value it. And you know, there's a downward spiral kind of effect there. But there's also an rev- uh, uh, upward spiral potential there, right? You read the Word and you begin to value it. And as you begin to value it, you desire to read it. And as you desire to read it, and you spiral into more scriptural intake. Reading the Bible is not a chore. It's a gift. Memorizing and meditating on it should be considered a delight. So, some points of application here. Point number one, have a plan. Have a plan. For me, many years of my Bible reading were starting in Genesis, of course, starting January in Genesis, and then realizing uh, about halfway through Exodus, uh, I'm ready for something else. And then I jumped to something really familiar, right? We, we all have read Proverbs a thousand times. Proverbs, it's, it's a fantastic book, fantastic book. But there, there is more Bible out there for us to discover Right? But for me, it was Genesis, Ephesians, Romans, First and Second Timothy, Proverbs, and then repeat that cycle again. Genesis, Ephesians, Romans, First and Second Timothy, Proverbs. There's a lot more to cover. We plan for the things that we want to get done. I, I've only lived in this valley for six months, but I'm amazed at the kind of planning, especially that you farmers have to do. Right? We're not talking like planning for next week. We're talking five years 20-year, I mean, some of you probably have 50-year plans um, as, you're, as you're thinking through growing fruit. Growing fruit is important. Growing souls is infinitely more important. And you know this. You know this. So let's plan for it. Be thinking now for your great-grandchildren. How will they be getting the word into them? Some of you might balk a little bit at having a plan. And there are, there are dangers to having a plan. Robert Murray McShane, many of you actually read McShane's Bible reading schedule. He said this, there's the danger of formality or self-righteousness or careless reading and having a Bible reading plan becomes a yoke that's too heavy to bear. But you can, you do plan for the most important things in your life. So please do plan for the most important thing in life. And let me, let me take a special and unique um, just a moment here with men, and, and in particular with dads. God has placed you very intentionally as the heads of your home. And so it's your responsibility to be a word man and to make sure that your wife is a word woman and that your children are word children. Men feel, feel an appropriate burden of responsibility in that. Grandfathers, feel that for your children and your grandchildren. Dad, we're, dads, we are responsible for ourselves and our wives and our children. As you plan, there, there are a lot of Bible reading plans. In fact, uh, Garth has written a fantastic pastoral word this week for Bible reading plans, so I'm not going to take, take time to go through different plans. There's a resource there for you. If you Google Bible reading plans, you will get almost too many uh, options to choose from. Let me just encourage you with, with an idea. Keep it simple. 
right? If I, if I were going to really get into weightlifting, I'm not going to start by trying to bench press 500 pounds on January 1st, okay? I'll kill myself. And I think some of us do that even spiritually, right? We're like, okay, man, I've been really slacking to read my Bible, so I'm going to get up at four tomorrow. Well, you've never gotten up at four in your life. And, and that's, so keep it simple, to have one verse that you meditate on for a week when you haven't been doing anything is an enormous step in the right direction. So keep it simple. And I would encourage you to, to plan for a place and a time and a specific Bible reading kind of plan. Memorize and meditate on the Word of God. And, and, and this is something that the Lord's been convicting me about even more than my Bible reading because we can get actually pretty good at doing our daily reading, right? Right? Like we get the little sheets, got all the passages marked out and the check boxes, and you can, you can, you, I can, okay, and I have a very simple mind, so some of you are probably even better at doing this than I. Um, I'm reading, right, and I'm thinking about what I have to do today and who I'm having lunch with and what I'm doing this afternoon, and my eyes are going across those words, man, and I get those three chapters done and the check box is done, and I feel good because I did my duty, right, and the whole time, like, I'm, I have another notepad over here, and I'm reading, and I'm like making myself notes. Don't forget to talk to so-and-so about such-and-such, okay? The harder thing and the more valuable thing is to meditate on the law of the Lord, and that's why we have that command even in Scripture, to meditate on it. I'm working on Scripture memory uh, now in a way that I haven't uh, in the past. There's a there's a really cool um, app that you can get for your smartphone. It's called Fighter Versus. It's actually the same ones that, we, uh, that, we're, that we've got in our bulletin and that, at least in theory, we're memorizing together as a church family. Um, let me encourage you to find some way to, to keep the word constantly before you. I've, I've been with some of you. You've got it above your kitchen sink, or you've got it on the dashboard of your truck, or you know, find something that works for you and get the word in front of you. Meditate and memorize it. Memorize and meditate on it. Get some accountability. So, so number one was have a plan. Number two was get accountability. Someone who will hold your feet to the fire, Right? We've all had accountability with people before who never asked us the, about the thing that we asked them to hold us accountable for. So read with someone else. Read with your family. If you, if you and your family haven't been doing family devotions, spending time together around the Word at all, and you move to doing it two nights a week, that's a huge step forward, right? I mean, now you've got a family that's getting the Word into them. So let me encourage you, remember, keep it simple, but do something, read with your family, ha- ask your children, say, kids, we're not going to go to bed until we've read the Bible together, okay? And your kids will love that because it'll be like 9.30 and you'll be like, it's time to go to bed. And they'll be like, no, we have to stay up, you know, we're going to read the Bible together, okay? But use your children and your wife as accountability. Number three, remember the reality that it is going to be hard. It is going to be hard because even though the law of the Lord is perfect and revives the soul and it's sure and making wise the simple and it's right rejoicing the heart, even though all of those things are true, there's only one person who has ever properly valued the word of God. And his name is Jesus. He was the word and he perfectly valued the word. And so because we are fallen sinners and we still have this remnant of sinful flesh in us even after we've been saved by God, we are going to battle to value the word of God. And only Jesus has ever valued it perfectly. So you've got an enemy who understands verse 10 better than you do, Satan. And you've got flesh that wars against your spirit, Romans 7. So be ready to fight. 
Don't say, I can't. You have a spirit that dwells and lives within you, empowering and helping you to live this way. So again, I come back to the question, if uh, I paid you $1,000 per verse, could you memorize scripture? The answer is obviously yes, I can. So do you value it? And tip number four, or application number four, look for Jesus. Remember, you're pursuing a person in the scriptures. You're not pursuing rules and regulations. You're not pursuing moral and ethical codes. The scripture has those things in them, but you're primarily pursuing a person. Remember, the the word of God is not primarily about what you must do in order to make Jesus happy with you. The word of God is primarily about what Jesus has done to make the Father happy with you. So remember that you're looking for a person. So for those of you in here this morning who all of this is very unfamiliar to you and you're not even sure you know, the, the necessity to read the Bible and, and who Jesus is, the scriptures that were given to show us who Jesus was because of our sin. We've all lived a life that only earned and deserves damnation. Jesus came and lived the perfect life and died on the cross so that those who will put their faith and trust in him can be brought back to God. And that same God has given us his word and it's through his word that we know these things. This is why it's so important. So, brothers and sisters, as you consider your goals, your aims, your resolutions for 2012, I do hope that you will plan, that you'll make effort to get the Word of God in you. I I do hope that you'll get some kind of Bible reading chart, some kind of Bible reading schedule. I hope that you'll find a place in your home or in your office. I do hope that you'll um, find a certain time every day where you're in the Word of God. I, I do hope all of that. But even more than that, my desire is that you would meditate on the law of the Lord day and night and thereby be, a tr- be like a tree that's planted by rivers of water, bringing forth fruit and not, not withering uh, when famine comes.